Lurking deep within all of us, I'll guarantee you, is a little bit of a prosperity gospel heretic. Now, maybe you're wondering what the prosperity gospel is. The prosperity gospel is the belief that financial and physical well-being are always, always, always the will of God for believers in Jesus. It views essentially the Bible as a contract between man and God. If man does his part, God will reward with well-being. Now, the most famous proponent of this false teaching is a man named Joel Osteen. And just to let you know the state of the church in America, his church is the largest church in America. But this is not new, this teaching. In fact, it is the core theology of Job's advisors, his friends, in the book of Job, which we spent time looking at together this last spring. And while most of us who are here today would reject prosperity gospel as a means for correctly understanding scripture on the face of it, we still succumb to its thinking from time to time. All of us can very easily give in to the notion that if we do good, we will get good. Now, if by that you mean, if I am faithful, I will get the very best of what God has to offer, which is God himself, then you're right. That's biblical. But if you instead mean, if I am faithful, then things will go well for me always in this world, well, then you're going to have a difficult time explaining the trials that will come into your life, into all of our lives. Now, as evidence that the prosperity gospel, prosperity theology is nonsense, let me present to you the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. The ancient city of Philadelphia was the newest of the cities that uh, Christ addressed in Revelation. And like all Roman cities, it was awash in immoral pagan worship. In the case of Philadelphia, the god who got the most attention was the Greek god Dionysus, also known as Bacchus. And for somebody that went to New Orleans Seminary, I recognize Bacchus as being the namesake of one of the more debaucherous parades that take place during Mardi Gras. I bring all of that up to let you know of the kind of party that was going on in Philadelphia all the time. And in that kind of environment, it would be tough to do church. And yet, the church flourished in Philadelphia. It was healthy it was strong. The people were faithful. In fact, this is one of only two churches of the seven that are addressed at the beginning of Revelation that receives no rebuke from God whatsoever. They had done good, but they weren't getting good. In fact, things for them were about to become exponentially worse. And to this church, Christ says one thing, hang on, and we'll see how he does that right now. Let's walk through these verses together. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will will open. Now, I know I've said this many times already. I'm going to say it one more time. 
Christ always presents himself at the beginning of these letters to the churches in a way that is meant to underscore and put in bold the primary message that he has for this church. And what he is seeking to do for this church is to remind them that he is the God, not a God, not not a God like the gods, the idols that were worshipped in the temples around them. He is the God. And the words that trigger that for them are the words holy one, the true one. These words are words that Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, used to reference the God of Israel. So Christ here is identifying himself as that God, the God of Israel, the one true God. And that fact is then underlined as he quotes Isaiah 22, 22. He says he is the one, Christ is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now, those are enigmatic words. We get that on the face of it when we read it. We see, I'm not certain I know everything there is to know about those words when they land in our ears the first time. And so I don't want to communicate to you that there's not any debate whatsoever about what these words mean. But I think that it is pretty clear by context that he is saying that he, Christ, is the one who opens and shuts the door to salvation. He is saying that I am the means by which people are welcomed into the heavenly city of God, the new Jerusalem, and I am the means by which people are kept out of the heavenly city of God, the new Jerusalem. And the reason for this specific presentation of himself becomes apparent in the next verse. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Here it is again, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. As with other churches, Christ says he knows their works, and the works that they had manifested are praiseworthy. But what is it that they have done? I believe that in the face of marginalization and even opposition, and with zero cultural power, they had been faithful. Now, you get that, but faithful to what? I think the key is the statement that Jesus makes about setting before them the open door. If that is the door of salvation, then he is commending them for being faithful to witness for Christ in their cultural powerlessness and in the face of opposition. In the message of the gospel, Christ had given them an open door to salvation, and they had faithfully proclaimed that message to the entire city of Philadelphia. Now, as just a side road here, not in my notes, which means that we're in danger territory right now, but as a side note, let me say to you that over and over again in these letters addressed to the churches at Philadelphia, one of the the overriding marks of health is the evangelistic temperature of the church. Their ability to maintain a commitment to the gospel of Jesus regardless of opposition. And we need to understand that this is more than just making a statement of faith available on the website of the first century church. This is 
an evidence of, this is a, a commitment to the individual members of the church being committed in their ongoing conversations with the people around them to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have many markers that exist in the modern world about what makes a healthy church. But Christ over and over again says to these seven churches that what makes you healthy is that you're committed to my message as evidenced by the individuals of the church sharing that message with the world around them. So it leads us to ask, how healthy really is Blue Valley if a measure of health is its members sharing regularly and faithfully in spite of opposition the gospel? with those with whom they come in contact. These people in this church, in the face of, of incredible opposition, had been faithful to do just that. And it had rattled cages. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, a few weeks ago in a letter to another one of the churches, we encountered the same kind of language, a reference to the synagogue of Satan. And that is, you know, ooh, scary, you know, what does that mean? It, it essentially just is referencing the local synagogue in that area. You need to understand that when the gospel came to new communities, at least in the first century, the primary pathway by which it came to those new communities was by engaging the local synagogue first. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish scriptures pointed to him as the Messiah. And so missionaries to these new communities would go to these synagogues and begin to teach in the context of that synagogue that Jesus, whom the Jews in Jerusalem had crucified, was indeed the one true God and was the Messiah sent from God. And there would be people that would receive that message and become followers of Jesus themselves, but that would typically, in pretty short order, enrage the, the, the good Jewish people of that synagogue, and not only would they cast out these heretics that were teaching that Jesus saves from the synagogue, they would actively oppose them, even to the point of physical persecution. They were saying, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the door that opens salvation, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, the worship of the one true God in the temple, as we worship the one true God in the temple, that is what opens the door. And so these, these people who believed that they were serving that one true God of Israel, worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem, had actually become pawns of Satan. And what, what Jesus is saying to the church at Philadelphia here is that these people that think that they are following the one true God are actually servants of Satan and are actively persecuting the true people of God, the church. And there will come a day, he is saying, when they will either surrender to the Christ of the church, bow down to him, or they will be judged by the Christ of the church for rejecting him as Savior, but he is telling explicitly the church here that because you have surrendered to the Messiah of God, Christ, you are the true people of God. Now, in the meantime, 
they would continue to face opposition. Opposition that would intensify and come from the religious right of Judaism trying to preserve the sanctity of the synagogue and the left, the pagan left from Roman culture. And they were doing good in continuing to be faithful in the midst of this, but they were not getting good in any kind of earthly sense. They were facing increasing trial, increasing difficulty. So what does Jesus say to these people? He says to them, hang on. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Now, this is one of the more widely known verses in the book of Revelation because it is frequently taught that this verse points toward what Christians know as the rapture. In case you're not familiar with that term, the rapture is a belief held by some Christians that before Christ begins his final judgment on the world for its rebellion against him during a time period called the Great Tribulation, that he will physically remove the church from the world. Now, we're not going to get into that right now because I don't believe that the best understanding of this verse is seeing it point to the physical removal of the church at some point in God's future for the world. Why? I have three reasons. Because of the historical context of this passage of Scripture, because of the biblical context of this passage of Scripture, and because of the grammatical construction of the verse. So let's deal with all three of those right now. Historically, we must never ever forget that these letters were written to real churches with real people facing real problems in the first century in their lifetime. When Jesus points to an hour of trial coming on the world, I believe then that it best references the coming persecution of Christians at the hand of Rome under the emperor Domitian, which took place right around this time. And no one believes that the church of Philadelphia was removed from the world to avoid that persecution at the hand of the Roman emperor. Literally, no one believes that there was a rapture, a miraculous and physical removal of the church at Philadelphia prior to this trial coming on the earth in the first century. So the historical context points away from this verse teaching the rapture of the church. The biblical context does as well. The verse itself is about enduring in the face of trial, not escaping from it. And the next verse, as we will see in a minute, continues that theme of endurance and not escape. This verse is about hanging on in the midst of trial, of being faithful to Christ, who would in turn be faithful to them by keeping them from the trial coming on the whole earth, which now leads us to the grammatical construction of this verse, which everybody's super duper excited to hear from me. I mean, everybody loves, you know, uh, grammar lessons, but, you know, don't let your eyes glaze over just yet. I'll make this quick. The key is understanding what kept from means. It can mean, and in fact, most naturally means keep you from undergoing the trial that is about to come. But it can also mean keep you, protect you as you go through the trial. Those are the two options with that phrase in John's language, 
kept from or keep from. So which is it? Well, there's only one other time in all of the Bible that the words in John's language that comes to us as keep from show up together in the entire Bible. And wouldn't you know it, they show up in a passage of Scripture where John, the author of the book of Revelation, is recording for us the words of Christ the night before he was crucified. Hold your place in Revelation chapter 3 and go to John 17. Christ is praying for the future church, his disciples who were following him in that room, and for the future church. And John, the author of Revelation, who's hearing the letter to the church at Philadelphia to record it to give to them, John, hearing the words of Christ, the same Christ who's speaking to him in Revelation chapter 3, records the words of Christ in this way. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then listen to this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There's our words, keep from. And the context is pretty clear in John 17, isn't it? Jesus has just specifically prayed that the church not be removed from the world as they face trial, but that while in the world, they would be kept from, protected from our adversary, the evil one, Satan. Meaning that Jesus is praying that his followers, the church, will be protected from the full effect and wrath of Satan while they are on earth. So now back to Revelation chapter 3. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying that as they faithfully endure, the church at Philadelphia, as they faithfully endure by being witnesses for him in the world, he will protect them when the smoldering embers of persecution erupt into an inferno of persecution in their world. Now, I am not saying that there aren't arguments that can be lodged against what I have just shared you with you as a point of view. I'm just saying that I'm firmly convinced that they are not the best explanation of this verse. So I do not believe that this verse is Jesus telling the church at Philadelphia that they are going to be physically removed from the tribulation that is about to come on the earth. I am saying that he is telling them that he will protect them when it does, fine. So, Revelation 3, this verse, I do not believe, teaches a rapture of the church. So, Derek, does the rest of Revelation teach a rapture of the church? Pastor, do you believe about the rapture of the church? Come back in January. <laughs> we'll deal with it in January. When we come back to Revelation from a Christmas break, remember, you know, we'll all love each other and then we'll come back uh, after the 1st of January. So Jesus concludes with these words. Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new 
he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hold fast, Jesus says, because I'm going to be with you through and not take you out of the trial that is to come. You can hang on to me in what you're about to face. Because of me, Jesus is saying here, you are secure in your salvation. That's something that's pointed to in the language of being a pillar in the house of God and never going out of it and having the name of Christ indicating ownership written on the lives of these Christians. Trial is coming, Jesus says. So hold fast in your faithfulness to me. Hold fast to me. There's a a story in our family that always makes me giggle because, quite frankly, it demonstrates what a horrible human being I am. But I will share it with you in the first place. Um, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Ring trilogy were, was in the cinemas when my son Caleb, now a grown man, a father, was a little boy. And he always wanted to go see them when they came out because he'd read the books. He was always super excited to go see the movie. They came out one year after the other. The second of those... Uh, movies, The Two Towers, came out when he was nine. And so we were in Amarillo uh, visiting his, his grandmother, his great-grandmother, extended family over Christmas, and we took time away from all of that so that we could go see the movie. And the lights dimmed, and the movie very quickly began to reveal the foe, uh, the, the hissing voice, the grotesque form of Gollum, the evil one. He crept up on Sam and Frodo to steal away the one ring. It's really kind of intense. And little nine-year-old Caleb reached over and grabbed my hand when he showed up. That'd be a sweet story. Except they went, ha, you're scared, aren't you? You know, not a good thing that I did there. I'm admitting to you that I, it was not a good thing. I was not a good Christ figure in that story. But the instinct was correct. He reached out for something to pull him through. And our instinct should be the same. Find Jesus and hang on. And here's why we can do that based on these verses. First, we can find Jesus and hang on because Christ opens. Our salvation was made possible because Christ opened the gates of heaven on our behalf. When facing trial, hang on to the grace of Christ that opened salvation to us in the first place. Why? Because it reminds us of his kindness, his unmerited kindness. It's so easy when we are under fire and when we are facing a trial to view Jesus through the lens of our pain and begin to question whether he's good. But if we begin to view our pain through the lens of Jesus, everything changes entirely. And we'll understand that this one who opened the door for salvation for me can be trusted in this trial to be good. Hang on to Jesus because Christ opens. Next, hang on to Jesus because Christ keeps. Remember all that we said about verse 10. Remember that it teaches that Christ will keep us through a trial. We are never alone in a trial. 
We are never left to endure in our own strength. And then finally, hold on by remembering that Christ seals. His name is written over our lives. He has fixed our eternal destiny in heaven. There is literally nothing that can undo that. Not any trial, not any opposition, not any persecution. Nothing can steal from you what is ultimately true about you if you are a follower of Jesus. So hold on to Christ because Christ opens, Christ keeps, and Christ seals. So what is the practical benefit of this? Well, on a personal level, I got to, I, I got to witness it in the last 24 hours. Uh, one of our church members, Mike Sample, passed away last night. Battled cancer for many years. And I went over last night and with family and friends. Um, we were able to sing around his bed. And I was able to pray for him as his pastor one last time. And, you know, I've been doing this, gosh, a long time. I've, I've been in vocational ministry for 34, almost 35 years. I hate that. There's a part of me, I hate that. I'm just so done with it. I'm, I'm just done with it. And yet, they always wind up, when I'm with believers, being a blessing because everything that we have just seen was true last night. There's a lot of pain in Mike's life at that time, and there's a lot of pain in the family. But because the family and because Mike is able to view their pain through the lens of Christ, and because they understand that Christ who has seen them through other trials could see them through this and because they understand that regardless of how the night was going to end uh, nothing was going to steal eternity from Mike they were able to hang on and they're going to continue to be able to hang on and those of you who have gone through something like that recently can say that's how we're able to hang on that's on a personal practical level. These aren't just theological concepts. These, this is real life nuts and bolts stuff. But then more broadly, these are difficult and uncertain times, aren't they? And personally, I've, I've never seen God's people, the church, this scared. We think we're righteously angry at secularism, at division, at the perceived loss of liberty. But really, we're just mad. And we're mad because we're scared. And we're scared because I think in the dark, we've been grasping the wrong hands. Grasping for the hands of political leaders, grasping for the hands of cultural approval, grasping for the hope of a vaccine, or grasping for the notion that the virus really isn't that big of a deal. Just grasp, grasp, grasp. But nothing is secure. And we're scared. 
So hold on to Jesus. He's proven himself faithful. He's proven he will hold you. We just need to learn to reach for his hand. And when we find it, understand he'll never let go. Let's pray together. Right now, I want you to think about your fears. Maybe generalized existential fears, just kind of concern about the world in general. Maybe something more specific, something maybe others know. Something maybe others don't. Only you know. Might be that you have job uncertainty and therefore financial uncertainty and you're scared. Maybe that you're dealing with some kind of physical malady that not everybody knows about. Maybe even a diagnosis nobody knows about. You're scared. The unrest that hits you in the head like a two-by-four every time you turn on television. You're scared. But I want you to view all of that through the lens of the salvation that you have been given in Christ and see it for what it is. Less than him. See him for who he has always been to you. Unbelievably kind. And hang on. And if this morning, here in this room or online, you recognize that you can't really do that because you've never given your life to Jesus as Savior. There's never been a before and after moment in your life where you cast your sin upon the sacrifice of Christ as the only means by which you could be made right with God and surrendered your life from that point forward to follow him as your king, if it's never happened, understand that you're rightfully scared. But your hope is the same hope that we all have, and that's in Jesus. And if you give your life to Christ, he will prove secure.